0: Good to see you people, go Tigers, let's be honest, you guys don't care, that's why you're here at Veritas, or you didn't have tickets, or maybe you just love Jesus, I don't know. Um, Maybe all three, odds are, gosh that's loud, odds are you've never heard the name uh, Mamoru Samura Gochi, born in 1963, Samura Gochi eventually became one of Japan's most popular musical figures. Especially impressive was the fact that he was completely deaf, right? Suffering chronic migraines in high school, he eventually completely lost his hearing in his early 30s, and so as a result, he has become known in Japan as a a digital age Japanese Beethoven, right? He was this deaf musical genius who brought inspiration to an entire country, to the entire country of Japan, and asked how he does it. Uh, Samira Gochi uh, said that he was able to, to do the things that he did because he had perfect pitch. And so he would rely on his perfect pitch to compose these musical scores. In an interview with Time Magazine back in 2001, he says this. He says, if you trust your inner sense of sound, you create something that's truer. It's like communicating from the heart. Then he goes on and he says this. He says, losing my hearing was a gift from God. The only problem with that gift is that Samura Gochi wasn't deaf at all. He literally was completely faking it. Even more, he couldn't even write musical scores for 20 years. Nearly 20 years, this so-called Japanese Beethoven, he'd been taking the credit for someone else's work. All of this came to light in 2014 when his ghostwriter, Takashi Nagaki, exposed his Fraud. Nagaki told reporters in Tokyo that, that he had been paid roughly $70,000 to, commu- uh, to compose music for Samuragochi. And regarding his deafness, Nagaki said that, that in the beginning Samuragochi Gochi would, would act like he was deaf. He would kind of go through the, the motions of being deaf, but eventually he just stopped the shtick altogether and the two had completely normal conversations. Nagaki said that he, he, he couldn't deal with this lie any longer, and so he, he brought Samura Gochi to light. You see, for nearly 20 years, he'd been living a lie until he was finally exposed for what he was. Tonight, we're going to look at a passage in the Bible. We're going to look at a story in the Old Testament book of Samuel in which God's people, particularly their motives, are exposed. So like I said, we're continuing our series through... Samuel. We're picking up the story tonight in chapter 8. Now, we need to to know this. Chapter 8 of of 1 Samuel, it's an important chapter in the Bible because in a lot of ways it's a turning point in Old Testament history. It marks a transition in Israel's history from from judgeship to kingship in the life of Israel. God's people want to change. And as Austin mentioned last week, up until now, Israel had had depended on God to, to raise up judges to lead the people as necessary, but tonight we see that they're tired of it. They want something different. They want someone different. They want a king. And Israel's demand for this king, it exposes them in three ways. Three ways we're going to see Israel's exposed tonight is that their demand for a king is sinful in its motives, it's selfish in its timing, and it's cowardly in its spirit. Sinful in its motives, selfish in its timing, cowardly in its spirit. First, Israel's demand for a king is sinful in its motives. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted according to all the deeds they have done from the day i brought them up out of egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so they are also doing to you now then obey their voice only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them so why does why does israel demand a king well at first it seems like it's a it's a legitimate request right the elders of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, you're getting old, and, and by the way, the son, your sons, the men that you appointed to, to succeed you in, in leadership, they're bad guys, they're unrighteous, they're unjust, and so we would think that, that Israel's demand here, their request, it, it seems legitimate, but at the end of verse 5, we see their motive exposed more clearly see, the real issue is far more serious and much deeper. Samuel says that Israel demands a king like all the nations. Why do they want a king like all the nations? Well, they want a king like all the nations because they themselves want to be like the nations. In other words, Israel is tired of of being who they were. And so in demanding a king like the nations, they were actually rejecting the identity that God had given them. What was that identity? Who were Israel supposed to be like? Back in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, this is God speaking to Israel. This is what he says about who they were supposed to be. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation see, God intended his people to be holy. That word holy, it, it means a few different things, but, but one of the things that it means is set apart or distinct. Another way we might say it is unlike. So in other words, Israel was to be unlike other nations because they were called to be like God. Leviticus 19:1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You see, Israel was supposed to be a special people with a special relationship with God, and as a holy nation, they were to be a people set apart for God's glory, but they were also set apart for God's purpose, His, his mission in the world. They were to be a, a distinctive kind of people, a, a countercultural community among the nations for the sake. Of the nations, Israel to be, was to be like God so they could reveal God to others and bring them into a relationship with Him. But Israel says, nah, I don't want that anymore. They're tired of it. You see, they're motivated to be like other people when God had already told them who they were. It's a complete reversal of who God was calling them to be. As one author put it, Israel was supposed to be a nation whose behavior was governed by God's word, but instead their behavior is governed by what other people do. They were supposed to be different, distinct, and holy, but instead they wanted to be the same. They wanted to conform. They wanted to fit in. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, revealing the rightness of God's rule, but instead of the nations learning from Israel, Israel learns from the nations. See, Israel's demand for a king in order to be like everyone else, it flips upside down who God's calling them to be. They reject who they're supposed to be in order to be like everyone else. They were called to be different, but they want more of the same. But this isn't just an Israel problem, right? I mean, this is a you and I problem if we're really honest. God wants... Our lives as Christians to be distinct. God wants our lives as Christians to be holy, to be set apart, attractive, so that we would attract other people to God. But a lot of times, our lives look a lot like everybody around us. A while ago uh, in London, college, guys attending university in, in London, and he wasn't a Christian. By the time he graduated, though, He was uh, seriously interested in exploring what Christianity was all about. And so he takes a job in East Africa. He's going to be in East Africa for seven months. And while he's there, uh, he has the opportunity to live with a Christian family. And so he knows this when he takes a job. And so he's excited because in a lot of ways, this is the, the perfect opportunity to see firsthand what Jesus, what Christianity was all about. As the weeks and months pass by, though, This guy never saw anything attractive. His family was apathetic towards him. They were apathetic towards their faith. They were flaky with their commitments. They didn't connect well with other people. They often complained about people behind their back. You see, most of what this guy heard about Christianity from other people, his experience living with a Christian family was completely different. And so consequently, he lost interest in Jesus. His interest in Jesus turned into disappointment. And so what does he do? He, he leaves. And he goes back home to India, where he's from. And he eventually led a revolution. His name was Mahatma Gandhi. What do people see when they look at your life? Think about that. What do they see? What do people see When they look at your life, gossip, materialism, laziness, racism, how do you use your words? What do you laugh at? How do you treat people? Where do you find your identity? What do you watch? How do you spend your free time? See, people are watching. People are watching. What do they see? Another story from London. If you've ever been, you probably remember seeing these huge red buses everywhere, double-decker red buses. They're all over the city. Apparently, a couple years ago, several years ago probably, a group of atheist societies, they pay for an advertising slogan, an advertising campaign to run alongside these buses. I think we have a photo of it, maybe. Yes, there it is. So the ad reads, if you can't see it, it says this. It says, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now imagine for a second buses like this are are rolling around on campus at Mizzou. What, What would people think if they saw these buses? What would they think if they saw these buses driving around, they read that ad, I don't know what they would think, but here's what I hope they would think. I hope they would see those buses, those ads, and I hope they would say, you know what? That can't be true. What that bus says can't be true because I know Kristen, and I know Ross, and I know Chelsea, and I know Taryn, and I know Gabe. I know people that go to Veritas. I know people that go to the crossing. They're Christians, and God is obviously real and living in them. You see, what do people see when they see your life? Do they know why you live the way that you do? Christians, of all people, are supposed to be living proof of the living God. Do our lives reflect that? You see, what if, what if people on campus, what if people in Columbia, they knew Veritas as a community, not just a few people, but an entire community of people, of Christians committed to serving other people instead of ourselves? What if they knew us as a community of people committed to not gossiping about other people? A community of people committed to, to resolving conflict lovingly instead of being passive aggressive? What if Veritas was known as a community on campus in our city as, as being a group of people committed to social justice issues, for being committed to caring about our world, for being committed to moral purity, and not self-indulgence. Above all, what if Veritas, what if Veritas was known as a community of people committed first to loving and obeying God? What kind of impact, think about that for a second, what kind of impact would that have on campus? Would that have in our city if that were true? What kind of impact would it have in your fraternity or sorority? What kind of impact would it have on your sports team? What kind of impact would it have in your residence hall, and your classes, at your job? See, God says, let your light shine before others so that the nations, other people will give glory to God. That's God's mission in the world, and that's our mission. People are watching. What do they see? See, I know the temptation to do what everyone else is doing, to want what everyone else has. I know that that's attractive. It's attractive in my life. I know that it's popular. I know that it's really comfortable. But ultimately, God says when that's what our lives become, it's a sinful rejection of who he says that we are and who he's calling us to be. So the first way that we see Israel exposed in our passage is that we see that their demand for a king is sinful in its motives. They want what everyone else has. They want to be like everyone else. The second way we see them exposed is this. Israel's demand for a king is selfish in its timing. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. First Samuel 8, 10 and 19. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, there shall be a king over us. see, the problem with Israel's demand for a king is not the simple fact that they wanted a king. Remember, God wasn't opposed to the idea of kingship in Israel. In fact, it was his plan from the beginning. He told Abraham in the, the book of Genesis that one day nations and kings will come from him. See, God's plan was that eventually Israel would in fact have a king, a human king, one that God himself appointed, one that God himself appointed to lead his people in righteousness and justice. And so the problem wasn't the simple fact that Israel wanted a king. No, the problem was that they wanted a king now. See, God said, I'm going to eventually give you guys a king, but... That wasn't good enough for Israel. So much so that they were willing to settle for a lesser king. And Samuel, he tries to warn them, right? He says, This is going to be what this king that you want is like. But it didn't matter. They were impatient. They wanted a king right now. Now, this isn't the only story of God's people being impatient with him. Unfortunately, it's nothing new. To Two quick stories, both from the book of Genesis. Early in the book of Genesis, God promises a a, a guy named Abraham and a woman, his wife named Sarah, he, he promises them children. But after years and years of not being able to get pregnant, instead of continuing to trust God's faithfulness, Sarah takes matters into her own hands. What does she do? Well, she tells her husband, hey, Abraham, you go sleep with our servant, Hagar, Get her pregnant so that we can have kids together through her. See, God told Sarah that eventually he would give her children, but she couldn't wait. So she takes matters into her own hands. Or think about the story of Esau. He he was the the firstborn son in his family, the rightful heir of his family's inheritance. One day he comes home from work. He's tired. He's exhausted. And his brother is at home. He's over a fire. He's cooking a, a apparently delicious smelling stew and he can't wait to eat but but that stew's not for him it's for his brother and so what does he do he says you know what i'm so hungry i can't wait i'm going to literally sell my inheritance for you for this soup that's what he does he literally sells his inheritance because of his hungry belly waiting is hard isn't it I mean, if we're really honest with that, literally, one of the hardest things I think in the Christian life is to wait on God's timing for certain things in our lives to happen. I mean that. My guess is that there are many of you here tonight feeling like God is delaying something in your life. Maybe there's something going on right now that you have been begging God to fix, to solve, to happen. Maybe you, you thought by now you'd have a really solid group of, of friends and, and you just don't. Maybe you thought you'd already have, maybe you're a senior and you thought you'd already have a job lined up. Maybe you thought you'd have an idea of what you wanted to do after college, but you still can't even decide on a major. Maybe you really want a dating relationship, but it just hasn't happened. See, I, I know It's hard. I experienced that hardship in my own life. Waiting sucks. But when it comes to waiting on God in our lives, I wonder, I wonder if there's something that he wants to teach us while we wait. See, have you ever asked God, have you ever stopped in the midst of of whatever is going on in your life, particularly as it relates to waiting, and said, God, what what are you trying to teach me right now? What are you trying to teach me as this thing that I want is being delayed in my life? You see, God had a plan for Israel, and he has a plan for you too. I'm going to be honest, I have no idea what that plan is for you. I, I literally have no idea what God's plan for your life is. But I do know that you can trust him. And so we all have to ask ourselves, myself included, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to trust God? Are we willing to believe that God actually knows what he's doing in your life? Even if his timing isn't what you expected. Even if his timing isn't what you want. Or are we just going to take matters into our own hands and Settle for something lesser than what God wants for us. Israel's demand for a king is sinful in its motives. It's it's selfish in its timing. And and third, Israel's demand for a king is, is cowardly in its spirit. Finish the story starting in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. See, part of why Israel wants a king so badly is because They wanted someone to represent them in war, someone to fight their battles. A king could do that. And remember, at this point in history, Israel's structure as as it relates to their government, they're they're really just a loose confederation of tribes. They don't have a central government. They don't have a standing army. And they also have standing adversaries on, on both sides of them. To the west, you have the Philistines. We looked a little bit at the Philistines last week. They're a a well-organized, powerful, aggressive state. And to the east, you have the Ammonites. And so Israel's meager military resources are being threatened constantly on both sides. And so it's it's somewhat sensible that that Israel would, would want someone to represent them, would want someone to fight their battles. A king could do that. So why then do we say, why did I say that Israel's demand for a king is is cowardly? Well, ultimately, because it represents a rejection of God, and it represents a rejection of God's rule over his people. You see, it reflects a failure to trust his power to save them. God saving his people, it's nothing new. Just just like I said last week, we, we see that God rescued Israel once before, especially, particularly from the Philistines, and he does so in a remarkable way. Just as the Philistines are getting ready to attack Israel, God thunders, the Bible says, and throws the Philistine army into a panic. That word panic, that's the same word used to describe what God did to the Egyptian army at the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. God throws Israel's enemies into a panic, and he saves them. But trusting God in the face of danger, when your enemy is threatening at your border, knocking on your door, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, we can empathize with that. It demands courage. It takes trust. It surely requires faith. Israel should have trusted that God was in control, even in the midst of this dire need, because he had taken care of them before. But they don't trust him. They take matters into their own hands see, Israel has a king, but they want a king they can see. They want someone tangible that they can put their trust in for their security. God wasn't enough. Living by faith in God had become too much work. It was too difficult. So Israel rejects their true king in favor of a human king. Look again at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of of the people and all they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. You see, this, this isn't anything new. God, ever since God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, they'd been rebelling against him, forsaking him, serving other gods. Israel has a king, but they reject him in favor of a different king, a human king, one they can see. It sounds kind of silly, but we do this all the time. We reject the true king of our lives in favor of of some other king. Something we can see. Something we can feel. I think Satan loves to feed us the lies that that you and I know what's best for ourselves. We don't don't need God. We've got ourselves. We, We don't need the Bible. We know what we need. I don't need God, I know what's going to make me happy. And so what happens is that, that like Israel, we reject God as king even though it means choosing tyranny. You see, Satan tempts and traps us into thinking that God is a tyrant, that, that he, his rule is oppressive. And so what happens is we end up rejecting our true king for some lesser king because we think that's actually going to make us freer. That doesn't bring freedom at all. Look back at 17 and 18. This king is going to take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, the one that you chose. You see, in some sense, this is a picture, spiritually speaking, of what happens in our lives when we look to a lesser king for our deliverance. When we look to a lesser king For our hope, and we look to a lesser king for our happiness. Ultimately, a lesser king's always going to leave us disappointed. A lesser king is always going to leave us wanting more because a lesser king will never follow through on its promises. And so when that king, whatever it is, whenever it disappoints us, we move on to something else. And then when that disappoints us, we move on to something else. And when that moves, when that disappoints us, we move on. Something else. The cycle goes on and on and on and on. Maybe some of you are on it right now. You know it. You feel it. You can't get out. See, hear me say this. Anything that we look to apart from God for our deliverance in our life is going to end up enslaving us, spiritually speaking. You're always going to want more, you're always going to need more. Israel wants a king like the nations, but that desire for that kind of king, it's going to cost them. Six times in seven verses, Samuel warns, this is what your king is going to be like. He's going to take and take and take. He's going to take your sons as soldiers. He's going to take your daughters as servants. He's going to take your best fields and your vineyards and your orchards. He's going to take your harvest. He's going to take your servants, your donkeys. He's going to take your flocks. He's going to take, take, take. That's what a lesser king does. That's what a lesser king will always do in your life. Contrast that with a very different kind of king. A king from much later in history. The Gospel of Mark, the New Testament. This is what this king, Jesus, says about himself. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, this is is how Jesus referred to himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the true king doesn't come to be served. He doesn't come to take. He doesn't come to get, or he comes to give. He's not here to take. He's here to give, and eventually he gives his very life for people just like you and me. Jesus isn't a king like the nations. If that's the kind of king we want, Jesus is not our guy. At his trial shortly before he was condemned to die, Pilate, the Roman governor uh, over Judea, he 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 talks to Jesus and he asks him a question and he says this. He says, "Are you the king of the Jews?" And Jesus responds and he says, "My kingdom is not of this world." You see, Jesus isn't a king like the nations. He's a king but he's not the kind of king that people are used to looking for. So as the music team comes up, I'm going to leave you with, with, with a question, and it's a question we've asked before. It's a question that I continue to wrestle with, and I think it's the question that Samuel is forcing us to ask and answer over and over and over. What kind of king do you want to follow? What kind of king do you want to follow? So as you embark on some of your most formative years of your life, this time in college, I I believe that, this is some of the most important years of your life, you have to ask yourself, who are you going to trust for your deliverance? Who are you going to trust for your hope? Who are you going to trust for your security? Who are you going to trust for your identity? Is it going to be Jesus? Or is it going to be some lesser king? Jesus is a far better king. He's a far better king. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take the next couple minutes and we're going to reflect on who this king is. Let's do that now. Amen. My
1: king was born king. Do you know him? Do you know him? Where? Our king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And He's impartially magical. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's the centerpiece of civilization. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand it. But they found out they couldn't stop it. Pilate couldn't find any fault in it. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yay! He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no fetishness, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after you him. You can't him, him, and he's not going to resign. All the power belongs to my feet. We around here talking about black power, and white power, and green power, but it's God's power. Thine is the power. Yeah. And the glory to get prestige and honor and glory for our Savior. But the glory is all His. Yes! thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. That's my king. Do you know him?
0: That's our king reigning in our universe and our world right now. Let's stand and ask him to come into our hearts now. Let's sing.